0: The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush and I'm here to introduce you to a special bonus New Statesman podcast episode. Our business correspondent, Emma Hazlitt, interviews Gary Stevenson, who used to be a city trader and is now a patriotic millionaire campaigning for a wealth tax. Now, they were speaking before Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor, lost his job, but they can give you an insight into what happened in the city and the markets that led that to happen. So enjoy. Hi, I'm Emma Hazlitt, the Associate Business Editor, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we're talking about the UK's economic crisis and what's next. I'm speaking to Gary Stevenson, an economist and former trader. Gary used to work for Citibank, a job he won in a card game, and in 2011, he became the bank's most profitable trader globally by correctly predicting the economy would never recover from the 2008 financial crash. In 2014, he quit his job, and he now campaigns against wealth inequality and educates people on economics via his YouTube channel, Gary's Economics. So, Gary, thanks for coming on. How are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. Very busy recently, but uh, happy to be on.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine you're busy. Uh, so, you know, in the aftermath of the budget, you did um, a YouTube video in which you had—I've got to say—it was like quite a visceral reaction to the budget. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how you were feeling while you were watching Kwasi Kwarteng speaking?
1: So I think in order to understand it, you need to understand a little bit about my background, right? Which is that I worked in the city from 2008 to 2014, and I was a very successful trader. And I was basically successful because I bet that after 2008, the economy would would basically never get better because we would have a structural problem of inequality, which would get worse and worse. So You know, I made a lot of bets that the economy would get worse and worse in terms of people's lives, and I think that turned out to be right, and I was very successful, and I made a lot of money, right? So, um, you know, in the last few years, I've been trying to sort of explain to people, look, if we don't do something about inequality, it's going to really damage your lives, right? Your lives, your kids' lives, your grandkids' lives economically. So, um, you know, that's the work that I do, and then I was sitting here, so I watched it here, my TV's right here, and I watched it, and, and it was significantly worse than expected with regards to tax cuts of the rich, right? And the first thing is, right, if I'm right, and you know, I think I am right, and I've, I've made a lot of money on being right, they've backtracked on it now, but we didn't know at the time they would do that. That would cause like really devastating impact to ordinary families, right? That means people don't get homes. Like I've got a, a, a few mates who've been like saving up so hard to, to buy property. They're living on their mum's sofas and they've got like 70 grand. They won't get, they won't get a house now because they can't get a mortgage. You know, it's really serious impact, right? And the impacts are really, really serious on how it's going to affect real families, right? And I thought, in a way, this is my fault because I consider it to be my job to explain to people, if you allow wealth inequality to get worse, that's going to damage your life, your family's life. But they did that, the government did that because because they thought they could get away with it and, and they can only get away with it because people don't understand it, right? You're watching a car wreck of people's lives, of people's futures. It's just like a sort of mad situation because, you know, I'm quite a rich person now and I live in like quite a nice apartment. And I'm sitting here watching this thing happen. I'm just going to devastate millions of people's lives and just thinking, what could I have done to have, have stopped this? You know, and it's, it's, yeah, it, it was strange and it was sad and it, it's great that they've had to roll back partially on it, but it doesn't fix the problem. We're still going to see really, really serious consequences.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I've spoken to quite a few people who point out that you just can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, once you've made that mistake, there's not a lot you can do about it and that's you know that's one of the things that we're seeing in the market reaction i mean was the reaction a surprise to you the way the markets behaved afterwards
1: it was actually i won't mention any names but somebody sort of who's involved with the lame party and said let us know if anything happens with the markets today and i said to them listen with the markets they know before we know everything's going to be fine obviously that was wrong that one that one particular thing was wrong the markets weren't expecting a 45 percent cut that was the big shock right and What's quite interesting about that is the 45% cut, it's not a massive amount in terms of income loss for the government. But I think what it showed was basically a signal that the government does not have a cohesive plan to pay this money back. Because we exist in an economy where the rich are getting richer very, very quickly. If the rich are getting richer and the rest of us are getting poorer, and then you start cutting the rich out of the tax system, you can see the lack of sustainability there. right? If if we're going to give all of the wealth and all of the money to one group of people, and then we're going to stop taxing them, well, how do you intend to get your revenue, basically? So the markets looked at this and they just thought like, here is a government that doesn't have a plan. And it's, it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen, Like, because it just was completely lacked cohesion as a strategy. And it, it was kind of hard to understand what are they actually trying to do? I was talking to traders and they were sort of saying, you know, Quasi Quasi used to work in markets. And people were just like asking around, do you know anyone who knows him? Like, is he an idiot, basically? That was what people wanted to know. Is this guy an idiot? And I never met the guy. I don't really know. But it lacks cohesion. If you, you cannot borrow money and immediately make it clear that you have no plan to pay it back. If you went to the bank and said, you know, can I borrow a load of money? And they said, how are you going to pay it back? And you were like, well, we'll there'll be some growth. We'll, we'll do some stuff and there'll be some growth. It, it would lend it to you, right? So, um, I called it vibe space growth. I think, you know, some of us sort of sat from afar judging sort of Donald Trump and this kind of thing and this sort of madness that happened o- overseas. And, um, we're not special. You can have governments who, who are mad and who are incompetent. And we can have a question over whether it was incompetence and why they did it. And I, th- I think we can sit down and understand there are reasons behind it. But the fact is, like, the economics of it, nobody believes it. Nobody serious believes it. I think it's something that, you know, people like us should ask ourselves, people who sort of sit on the left of the political debate, how do we get ourselves in a situation where the government thought they could do this? And the people who actually stopped them from doing it were traders in Canary Wharf. We should have made it clear to everybody <laughs> That That is not a viable strategy and the government should not have considered it to be a thing that the public would accept. So I think to a degree, it's our fault for allowing these politicians and parts of the media to lie to the public. You cannot give everything to the rich and expect not to be poor.
0: There's a very strong point that, that we're um, kind of asking people in Canary Wharf to be our check and balance. It did feel like, it felt like a very human reaction to me, the the market reaction, actually. And I was quite surprised because, you know, if you look at so much trading is done by, via algorithms now. But as you point out, it was such a small amount, that 45% tax yeah. rate. It was quite surprised. I mean, you mentioned there that you were talking to to traders. What was their reaction generally? Like, do you kind of know what was going on on trading floors at the time? So
1: obviously, I'm not on the trading floor anymore, but I do speak to a lot of traders. The people I spoke to, it was just, they were literally incredulous. They were like, what are these people doing? I think, honestly, the sort of, the economics of it, are, I think I understand well and they're not confusing. The thing that is most mysterious is, is the genuine question of why they did it. Why did you do this thing? And I think traders are asking the same thing. And it sounds bad to say it, but these are the conversations we were having. It's, are these guys stupid or are they totally ideologically deranged? These are the conversations we were, and you know, these are not moral philosophers. You know, these guys are interest rates traders, you know what I mean? <laughs> And they're sitting there thinking, "Is this government, the UK, you know, being run by people who are mad, basically?" And yeah, I think it's it's easy to say, "Oh, that's like simplistic analysis," you know, and, or that's like moralistic or ideological. The primary question traders are asking is, "What is wrong with these people?"
0: Was there any celebration? I heard about you know people kind of banging on their desks when when um, he announced that tax yeah. cut, but the the people that I've spoken to were not particularly celebratory.
1: No, I mean, obviously. You can imagine that the traders who still talk to me and who I still talk to are perhaps a subset less likely to celebrate that kind of thing. But, you know, the truth is, first of all, the limitations on bankers' bonuses, it didn't actually end up significantly reducing bankers' pay anyway because it just led to a massive increase in salary. So that itself is not necessarily a really great thing for bankers. The cut in the top rate of tax, you know, I worked in the city, they're, they're not, it's not for the geniuses, but I think the smarter people there realise that If the cost of cutting taxes on the rich is the destabilization of the entire economy, that's probably not good for you even as a rich person, right? The rich have done very, very well in the last 10, 15 years and especially the last three years. If you're willing to destabilize the entire economy of the country that you live in in order to get 50 grand extra a year, it's not wise, is it? Stability, which guarantees you wealth, is better than destroying the place that you live.
0: So I, I mean, you made some really interesting points on why it wouldn't work, the kind of economics of why it wouldn't work. Can you kind of distill that down for me? And, I, you know, one of the points that you made was that money is not resources.
1: When you say why doesn't it work, I think there's two separate questions there, which is why doesn't it work for the market? And why doesn't it work for the people of the country? Because those are two very separate Groups of people with very different incentives. Let's talk about the people of the country, because I think that's where you're going for. So the government did something which, in a way, is quite interesting and, in a way, quite intelligent, okay? Even though I've said that what they did is mad, there's an intelligence behind it, which is they slightly cut tax on ordinary people in, in the cutting of the 20% rate to 19%. That affects most workers in the country. So they saw a small cut in their taxes, but they cut taxes on very wealthy people enormously. So, you know, an ordinary person going to be paying something like, well, would be paying something like 50 or 100 quid less a month. And a wealthy person might be bringing an extra sort of 50 grand a year if you have a very high income. And one of my friends called me up and he's just from where I'm from. I'm from Milford, in East London. And I was trying to explain to him how bad this going to be. And he was like, well, I think my mates might be happy with it because they've got their taxes cut. And I think this is this interesting question, which is if the government gives you 100 pounds and the government gives the rich guy down the road 100 grand, are you better off? You know? And the point I've been trying to make in my videos is money is not real resources, right? Money is not food. Money is not healthcare, money is not housing, money is not energy, all right? If you give everybody more money, you have not increased the amount of real resources in the economy, right? So it doesn't make anybody rich. If there's not more real resources, you won't get more real resources. If you give everybody money, all that happens is the prices go up. But if you give one person a little bit of money and another person a lot of money, what will happen is the person who got a little bit of money will have more money, but they will get a smaller share of the overall resources. They'll get less food, less healthcare, less housing. Because ultimately, money is a relative asset. It is the asset that we use to determine how we distribute the real assets. And what I think is really interesting about this is during COVID, the government printed and distributed an enormous amount of money, 600 billion pounds, which is 12,000 pounds for every adult in the country, right? And that ended up being distributed very unequally. So an average person did accumulate money during COVID, like one or 2,000 pounds. But wealthy people literally accumulated hundreds of thousands of pounds during COVID. And can you talk a bit about how? Yeah, so I think the reason that happened, I, I was screaming about this at the beginning of COVID. And obviously, you know, I'm better known now than I was then, so not many people were hearing. What was interesting about COVID was from an economic perspective, really the problem was simply that rich people stopped spending money. Because ordinary families didn't reduce their expenditures significantly during COVID. And that is because most people's expenditures are mainly ex- expenditures you can't avoid. Rent, mortgage, food, bills, this kind of thing. So ordinary people's spending didn't fall, but the spending of the wealthy massively collapsed. And that is a problem because when you pay your rent, mortgage, food bills, it goes to the wealthy. So you need the wealthy to be having a lot of luxury spending to give money back to ordinary families. So basically money stopped traveling around in a circle. It meant that you still have to pay your rent to the rich, but they're not going on a holiday. They're not going to the theater. They're not going to the bar. So they're not paying your wages anymore. And government basically stepped in to fill that gap, right? They said, don't worry, we'll pay your wages. Now, from the perspective of an ordinary person, that seems great, right? Okay, I'm not getting my wage, but the government's paying it. But previously, you were getting the wages from the rich because they have high spending. And you're paying the wages back to the rich when you pay your rent. But in COVID, money that used to travel in a circle from the rich to you and back again, suddenly the government is printing it, giving it to you. You're paying your rent, your mortgages, going to the rich. And the rich cannot spend because they're locked at home. So the rich are just keeping it. So essentially... There was this massive transfer of cash from the government, 600 billion pounds through ordinary families to the rich. And honestly, my mind was blown at the paucity of analysis at the beginning of COVID. Like, if we're going to give out 600 billion pounds, if the government is going to print and give out 600 billion pounds, please, God, somebody do an analysis where the money will end up. 600 billion pounds is 12,000 pounds for every adult in the country. If you're going to give that amount of money out, you're going to massively change the distribution of wealth in the country. And if, you do, if anyone did the analysis, which unbelievably nobody did, you would have easily seen the government is subsidizing the spending of the rich here. And this will end up in the bank accounts of the rich. We're going to give 600 billion pounds to the rich, which means your average wealthy person is going to accumulate about 150 grand per person. And then people were predicting house prices would fall. the mass stupidity that we saw in economic analysis at the beginning of COVID was just honestly something to be witnessed.
0: Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer, we'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... Edward Dox on the death of Boris the Clown. When did the booing start?
1: He was never exactly sure.
0: A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk.
1: One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents...
0: May Robson on why women's football is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain Leah Williamson can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from The New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. them. seems like a very good way to segue into trick, trickle-down economics, yeah. which is what you know, Liz Truss and Kwasi Korteng are, are relying yeah. on. You've explained very well in one of your YouTube videos why it doesn't work. Do you want to kind of give us a bit of a flavour yeah, of that?
1: it's super important that people understand this right now. Okay, so there is actually a sensible sounding concept behind the idea of trickle-down economics, which is the true fact that rich people spend a much lower percentage of their income than ordinary people, which means, of course, they save a much higher percentage of their income than ordinary people. So then that creates this idea. If we give a big flow of cash to the rich, then there'll be much more saving. And, you know, saving is kind of investment, right? If people are saving, then it's going to be invested. And the lazy step here is that savings necessarily equals investment. So let's unpack a little bit what investment is. Okay. So when we talk about investment from the perspective of a whole country, we're talking about building new productive things, building new factories, building new wind farms, start a fracking industry, if that's what you want to do, building new homes, you know, upgrading our existing homes by more insulation, things like this, improving the productivity of our country. Right, That's investment from a national perspective. But if we give a ton of money to the rich, are they going to go out and build a wind farm? Realistically, when that rich person has the money, he has the alternative option of just buying existing assets, right? Like buying existing homes. So th- this is why the most obvious outcome of COVID was a massive increase in house prices from the beginning. And if a rich person gets a ton of money and just gives that money to his kids, and then his kids buy a house in cash, that hasn't grown the economy. That hasn't done anything. And the problem is that this feels like investment from the perspective of an individual. I get a load of money, I buy a house, great, I've invested. But he doesn't do anything to grow the country. All that means is my mates who don't have 300 grand from their mom, can't buy the house because the rich people's kids are doing it. So really, ultimately, all they are doing is buying assets from poorer family. You know, I like to sort of make the point. I'm 35 now. A lot of my friends' parents had properties, but will never be able to afford properties themselves, right? Those properties are not disappearing. They are going to the kids of the wealthier family. So if you give money to the rich, they can use that money simply to buy your assets. It doesn't grow the economy. It doesn't make anything more productive. All it does is increase wealth inequality, which if you believe my analysis, it's the core fundamental problem. So you're literally throwing money into making the problem worse. And the end result is that ordinary families generationally are losing their homes.
0: Would the real estate sector disagree with you there and say that they are growing the economy?
1: And I've got no doubt that they would. I've got no doubt they real estate because that's what they're making their money. Listen, if you give a ton of money to rich people, then that's great for estate agents. And I'm sure estate agents will tell you that it's great for the economy. I think whenever somebody tells you, I, I think we should do this thing because it's great for the economy. I would strongly encourage anyone to take a step back and say, okay, that might be true, but is it also very good for the person telling me that? Because if, if it's very, very good for them, then they've got an incentive to tell you it's good for the economy. Right? Listen, I'm a wealthy person, okay? I'm a multimillionaire. If we raise taxes on rich people, I will personally have to pay more tax. But I campaign on it because I've made my money by betting that if we don't do that, we will destroy our economy. I'd make nothing from saying that. I think Liz Truss is worth £8 million. You know, if she comes out and says, if we cut taxes on the rich, that's good for you. You probably should ask yourself, well, I'm not sure it's good for me, but I'm pretty sure it's good for you. We need to be more sceptical and and ask ourselves, you know, is this information that you're giving me for my benefit or is it really to your benefit?
0: Okay, so in that case, what should Labour be doing about it? If you were Keir Starmer, what would you be prioritising right now? I
1: I went to the Labour conference. I'm not like some mad Labour supporter or anything, but I went to the Labour conference because I was asked to speak at something and it was immediately after the budget, right? the mini budget. And a lot of people there were were really happy because the government has shot itself in the foot and it looks probably like Labour will win the next election. We don't know for sure, but I think they probably will because the economy will get worse. So people were happy because Labour was going to win. And me, from my perspective, what I believe is that if if you want to improve the economy really seriously, you have to stop wealth inequality from increasing or at least make it decrease. From the way I see it, this wealth inequality is growing really rapidly and it's a cancer in the economy. You can do whatever you like around it. If you don't fix that cancer, we're in for a bad time. When I look at Labour's policies, I don't see anything that is seriously going to bring wealth inequality down or even in fact stop it growing. What I see is a party that will most likely decrease the rate at which wealth inequality is increasing. So these guys are going to decrease the rate at which the cancer is growing. I mean, it's better your cancer grows slowly than it grows quickly. But if you don't stop it from growing, then your future is going to be bad, right? So It was very difficult for me to be optimistic at this conference because whilst I'm aware Labour will probably win, I don't believe they're going to do anything serious about wealth inequality. So I'm trying to talk to the people because ultimately it is ordinary families that will be hurt by this. And I want people to hold parties like Labour's feet to the fire and say, listen, it's not enough that you make a few like tinkering around the edges. You need to do something serious. Measure what's happening with wealth inequality, create systems such that wealth flows out of super wealthy families and into ordinary families. And there's lots of different ways you could do that. You know, the one which is most popular at the moment is the wealth tax. It polls well. That's why I publicly support it. There's other ways you could do it as well. I've got an idea on my website called the Wealth Time Limit, where you basically force rich people to spend much more money during the course of their lives. But I studied originally mathematics. I look at the economy as a system and what I see is massive flows of wealth from the government and from ordinary families to the rich and the very rich. If you don't do anything to reverse that, then you will impoverish your middle class and... We're seeing it before our eyes. So I think I get concerned because, and I don't hate Labour, I don't love Labour. What I want is a, an economy that is not about to explode, right? I see these guys not fully grasping the seriousness of the economic problem we have here. Because until we start talking about having wealth flowing back to ordinary families, then you, in my opinion, you cannot see any serious economic improvement.
0: So hit me with your predictions of the economy this time next year. Where are we going to be?
1: I think the, the big area where I kind of differ from the mainstream at the moment is that I think we're going to see another significant increase in asset prices. I think in the short term, with this really significant increase in interest rates, there's definitely a chance that we'll see house prices stagnate or even fall. But I think what people are missing is, for example, we talk about the government debt and the government debt has increased massively. It's, it's going to increase 700, 800 billion yeah. pounds now. People forget that that is money owed to people. So that an increase in government debt is an increase in private sector money holding, right? And it, that is also, this is another big problem in the way that the media talks about economics. We don't make it clear that 600 billion is not all the 600 million. You know, the government deficit in the last three years is going to end up being 800 billion pounds, okay? That is 16,000 pounds per adult in the code. That is how much money the government is giving out. That is increased private sector cash holding. And what ordinary people don't right. see, and what I try, what I'm screaming about is, The unbelievably enormous increases in cash holdings of wealthy people here. These guys have so much money.
0: It's because the government will owe money to the private sector.
1: Quite simply, because when the government gives money out, then people receive money. It drives me mad that people don't seem to realise this. If the government gives out £800 billion, then people get £800 billion. That is £16,000 per person. Mm -hmm. If you, as an individual person, do not end up with £16,000 cash, more than you had three years ago, Someone else has your £16,000. If the government were to take £16,000 off everyone and give it all to the rich, people would be up in arms. But when the government prints it and gives it to the rich or borrows it and gives it to the rich, people obviously don't notice. But if we were to tax these guys enough to make them simply as rich as they were three years ago, we could give every adult in the country £12,000 and this crisis would be over. We've just seen the biggest and fastest ever increase in inequality in the history of the country. Which, if you think about it, creates an unbelievable opportunity to fix this crisis. Because what that means is there's been an unbelievable increase in wealth of the very rich. At the same time as that happening, ordinary families are not able to feed their kids. At the same time as the average billionaire increased their wealth by 700 million pounds in the first single year of COVID. And nobody is saying, well, why don't we access that massive increase in wealth, which really has been a result of an epidemic and a government policy. Nobody is talking about it. It drives me mad that I don't hear more people on the left saying, have you seen how much the wealthy have increased their wealth by in the last three years? Then it would be plain as day that this crisis was fixable and what we needed to do to fix it. Never in the history of economics has it been more obvious what should be done. You simultaneously impoverish your Mm -hmm. ordinary families so they can't heat their homes, can't feed their kids, whilst at the same time creating the biggest and fastest ever historical increase in billionaire wealth. It should be obvious, and it drives me mad that we're not talking about him more.
0: Well, listen, Gary, on that cheery note, I'm going to end. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Um, and if you've enjoyed this, do check out Gary's YouTube channel, which is called Gary's Economics. That's right,
1: Gary's Economics. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Emma Hazlitt, and my special guest, the economist, Gary Stevenson. We're produced by Mae Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project,